so an important leadership announcement from the elders today. We have a couple potential deacon candidates we want to present for consideration and prayer over the next couple weeks. And every time we do this, we like to just say a brief word about what the deacons do, who they are, um, how we select and appoint them. So I'll try to make this quick, but uh, hopefully helpful to everyone. That we usually get asked these kind of questions whenever we do this. So um, first of all, the Bible says that a church is to be led by a group of men of elders and a group of men of deacons to help shepherd and take care of the needs of the church. We see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And the elders' role, we see kind of simply stated, is to lead and manage and direct the church from a leadership point of view, to care for its needs, to oversee the teaching of the word of God to the flock, and to protect it from division and false doctrine. And then the deacons are really to meet the practical ministry needs of the church, whatever they are. So it could be you know, building and facility maintenance, uh, could be overseeing the financial management of the church. Um, we'd also like to see this ministry expand into other areas of mercy, meeting practical needs uh, such as yard work or transportation or uh, just whatever those kind of helps could be. And so we need to expand our deacon team to accomplish more and be a bigger blessing from that to the church. So we're, we've been praying for and looking for some capable men. And uh, the question usually gets asked, how does someone become an elder deacon? Uh, how does that process work? And first of all, it starts with a personal desire. You know, God, through his Holy Spirit, does a work in a man's heart to lead them into this kind of ministry. And then, so it's a willing heart. It's not something you do because you want to be in leadership to be recognized as a leader. Um, it's something because you do because you want to actually do the work of the ministry. And there's a difference there between someone who wants to be recognized as a leader and somebody who actually wants to do the work of a leader. And usually we look at people's lives and we see um, in their action that there's evidence of a sacrificial and loving service, a pattern of sacrificial loving service and evidence of caring for people and evidence of studying the scriptures and knowing the word of God well to be able to be a leader of his people. And then the Bible clearly lays out some high moral and spiritual qualifications. And I just want to read this quick as a refresher and from 1 Timothy 3.8. It says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So uh, the elders have looked at some men, and we see that we feel like they're reasonably well qualified. No one's perfectly qualified, but reasonably well qualified to serve like this. And, uh, but it's not something that the leadership does alone. The we need the congregation involved in this. It's not just a passive thing for you guys. Uh, we want an informed, involved congregation in this examination and appointment process. Uh, we want to listen to, consult with you, uh, seek your wisdom, and um, please pray with us. Over these next two weeks here, before we'd like to recognize them in a couple weeks, uh, we just ask for your prayer, and we'd invite you to take this time to freely express your questions or doubts or approval of these candidates to us. Um, and then in a couple weeks, now the New Testament doesn't specifically give a lot of detail about how a church is to do this, but 
that's okay. You know, I think we're given some freedom to do it how we want. Um, so in a couple of weeks, what we do see in the scriptures is that the apostles oftentimes would pray over their new leadership and lay their hands on them as if to say, you know, here are some new elders or new deacons to help meet your needs as a church. And so we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. So I just want to present a couple names here this morning. Um, we, we have invited Doug Elric to meet with us a couple times and prayerfully consider deaconship. Um, we really appreciate his uh, contributions here in ministry over the recent years, especially in small groups and, and not teaching in other areas. And also Ryan Carter, uh, who's also been a very faithful brother, uh, been helping with the financial parts of the offering and uh, teaching alongside me in Awana as a heart for kids and really ministering to the kids. So I'm, I'm just going to close this announcement with a brief word of prayer, and I'd just like you to pray with me and um, again, to just invite you to freely come to the elders for your um, input on these two men. Father, we just thank you for your scriptures, which make it clear to us that your servants in a leadership position in the church um, need to be blameless, need to be qualified, well-qualified, spiritual men, my, spiritually minded men who care for your people and have a heart to do the work of elders and deacons. And I, I pray for my fellow elders and deacons already that you would embolden us, empower us, and uh, protect us from the enemy, and help us in our work to do a faithful work, a good work for you here. And I pray for Doug and for Ryan, uh, that you, through your spirit, would guide us through this process just very prayerfully. We want to carefully do it, uh, knowing this is a big thing, Lord, to take care of your house here. And also, Lord, um, help every member here in the congregation to get more involved in the ministry. Lord, what elders and deacons can't do all the ministry. We need every member doing their part and exercising their spiritual gifts for the growth of the body of Christ. And we just pray for your blessing on all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I believe Debbie has an announcement about Sunday school. Good morning. Last week we had a baby dedication here, and my kids were um, older than baby when we started at this church. My youngest was seven, so they didn't get dedicated. But along with my announcement for Sunday school, I just want to thank you for the kindness that you guys have all shown to our family, and I see you do it to others as well. Everywhere from praying over our children like you promised last week that you would do for the babies that were up here, to teaching them Sunday school, and just the amazing things I see this small church do in the Easter egg hunt and the Christmas shoe boxes. I just sometimes say, God, your kids are awesome. And I think of Judges 5-2 where it says um, that Deborah is singing to the Lord over a victory in battle. And she's singing that the leaders led and that the people volunteered bless the Lord. And um, it is just something to thank the Lord for, for all the you guys that you do in whatever big or small way. We have a need for Sunday school teachers right now, a couple of um, spots to be filled, teaching, and then also maybe one or two for um, just being an aide. If you feel like that's your gift and you love kids, you love teaching the Word of God, then that's a spot you might enjoy filling. We'll have these forms to fill out. We need background checks nowadays on everybody. And so um, also this will give you us more information on yourself as to where you like to serve, exactly how. So these will be back on the welcome table in the entryway. Please just go ahead and grab it and fill it out and put it either on Megan's desk or give me um, your copy and I'll get you started. Thanks so much for your help.
uh, pray as we continue to worship Father because of your love we can live and as we turn our minds and our hearts now to worship you through the study of your word it is my prayer uh, that you would inform our minds that you would use these truths to transform our hearts and that you would work in each of us to conform us to your will and your way we need your help and by your grace we pray that you would grant it to us in Jesus name amen this past week at our daughter's public school they had what many of you are familiar with called the Iowa test of basic skills uh, some of us have endured them more than we would care to endure them. But basically, it's the state's attempt to try to see if the students are measuring up or how they're progressing, whether they actually are learning anything or not. And uh, You can debate with me if you want. We can debate about the value of those tests and all that sort of stuff. But that's the, the reason they give them is to see if they're measuring up. As we're working our way through the epistle of 1 John, we see that John has given a series of tests to see if we measure up, to see if what we profess is truly what we possess. And so he lays out for us a series of tests that we can use and apply to ourselves to see where we're at in the grand scheme of things, whether we are truly a child of God or whether we aren't. In chapter 3, which is where we're at this morning in verses 11 through 18, we're considering the love test again. John has talked to us about this love test back in chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. And now he comes back to it again, which he does periodically in this short epistle. He comes back to the same thing. It's kind of like the children of Israel, you know. We go through the Old Testament, and every time we read the children of Israel, well, God's trying to teach them the same lesson. You kind of go, duh, will they not get it? Well, it's kind of easy to be hard on them, but in reality, we're not much different. And so even in the New Testament, we kind of revisit a lot of the same truths. But in chapter 2, which we just finished up, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10, we saw that uh, there was this test of, are you, are you really practicing righteousness? Because of Christ's future coming and Christ's first coming provide a motivation for right living and right living is the test for right standing with God. And now we move on because we're going into the love test, which was introduced to us in chapter 3, verse 10. I have my Bible open to 1 John chapter 3, so if you would take your Bibles and open there too, you see in verse 10 that he says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brethren. And so there he introduces the idea of loving the brethren. Now, I don't know how many of you are the TLC fans on TV or you like watching these reality TV shows, but some of you are familiar with the, the reality TV show Cake Boss, right? So in this reality TV show, uh, I think we have, a, we have a video picture of Buddy and his, uh, his gang there. Yeah, there they are, the bake shop, okay? There's some, there's some striking similarities between what it is that makes 
the cake boss and their business successful and what the expectation God has for the church of Jesus Christ in living out our calling. And I just want to highlight one of them this morning, which comes from our text, and that is the sense of community, the sense of strong, loving relationships within that body of family, of Buddy's family, is the, the thing that they illustrates, illustrates what God has called us to in the church. So what the cake boss finds true in his family is an illustration of what the church boss, Jesus Christ, demands from his people, and that is that we love one another. How do we know if we're a child of God? Well, as we come to this text, we find out, the text tells us that we can know that we are his children if we love one another. The glue that holds the cake boss family together is the same glue, actually it's a little different probably, but it is an illustration of the glue that holds the church of Jesus Christ together, and that is our love for one another. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, there are at least, as I look at it, four lessons of love that are taught that are intended to convince us that we possess what we profess if we truly love one another. Now, this is a one another passage. It's a passage about loving one another in the body of Christ, fellow believers. And so I'm going to read the text, and then we'll unpack those four lessons. I'm in 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or deed, word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In deed and truth. Talk is cheap. That's what he says. Talk is cheap. That's my abbreviation of verse 18. Talk's cheap. Uh, but we need to do it. So the first lesson of love is in verses 11 and 12 is the mandate. We're given a mandate. We, we learned that the future coming and the first coming of Christ motivates right living, which is the test of right standing, which is conduct reveals character, okay? Well, now the transition comes from verse 10. We are to love one another. We are to love one another. Now, the one who does not, I don't know, is this ringing in your ears? It's ringing in my ears a little bit. Okay, sorry. Um, just a little bit hot. Um, anyone who's not practicing righteousness is not of God. Anyone who does not love his brother is not of God. I find that interesting that he used the negative. You know, it's that we're not of God. Anyone who does not practice is not of God. So obedience and love, you know, practicing righteousness, loving your brother, obedience and love are the tests. They don't make me a child of God. They prove that I am one. Okay? Cyclone fans were excited to watch the Liberty Bowl 
You know, they, they watched the Liberty Bowl, they cheered for the Cyclones, but all those things didn't make them Cyclone fans. It just proved they were, all right? Just proved they were. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're obedient to the Word of God, and when we are loving our brothers, that doesn't make me a child of God. It just proves that I am one. So, John punctuates the priority on love as the proof of possessing true faith in Christ in these next two verses, in verses 11 and 12, in a couple of different ways. First of all, there is the exhortation. It's a two-part command. Verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. This is, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 7, it's a similar idea, that you should love one another. So this is not some secret hocus-pocus, not some secret handshake, not some secret thing. It's something that was from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 13, verse 34, which we'll have on the screen, I think. If you don't, you can write it down, 1334. This is a new commandment which I leave you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, you also love one another. That's what we're supposed to do. See, John was writing to people who thought that they had special enlightenment. They had special words and special news. And he's saying, no, this is not a new word. This is an old word. It's, it's, it's from the beginning, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And God just expects us to do what is trusted and to try what God has called us to. The call for unconditional love for those in God's family is the test of our identity. If we don't love each other then how can we say we have the love of God abiding in us? That's what he's saying. C.H. Dodd puts it this way. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life. The willingness to surrender that which has value for our own life to enrich the life of another. Now, that's not all that love is. Maybe when we get into 1 John 4, we'll go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But love is to take that which has value in my life and to sacrifice it to enrich the life of another. Now, we'll tease that out a little bit more as we go on. But it's to sacrifice our energy, our time, our talents, our treasures. For the sake. I would say to you, if you don't even necessarily know if you have the gift or the passion for teaching young children, you might want to try it. How do you know if you have it if you never do it? You know, so talk to Debbie and say, well, I'd like to give it a try. You know, maybe I'm good. Maybe I'm not. You can help me out here. So that's the thing that we would do. And then there's the explanation in verse 12, which I find is a very particular, peculiar way of explaining what love is by using the negative. I'm going to tell you what loving one another is by telling what loving one another is not. It's not like Cain. It's not hating somebody. It's not murdering somebody. Verse 12 says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. Uh, this is a very graphic term in Greek, which, I mean, he literally, you know, this was not pretty. So he slew him. And his doing so, his practice revealed his parentage. If you've been with us, you, re you remember last week we talked about that our, our parentage, who our parents are, what our genealogy is, spiritually reflects what we do practically. And he murdered somebody. Now, who is the murderer? <laughs> the devil. 
John 8, 44. He's a murderer from the beginning. And so Cain was simply reflecting his spiritual heritage when he murdered his brother Abel. And that's what John is saying is not what it means to love one another. His anger was fueled by jealousy. And then it, it fermented and it fomented into hatred and found its solution in murder. Now, Christians, now look, believers, we don't even necessarily have to like each other all that much. I mean, everybody. I mean, let's be honest. I don't, you, know, you don't like everybody who's a Christian. It's like not, not your best buddy, not your best pal. But we are to love one another. We are to want love. That's what separates us from the world. That's how Jesus goes on in John 13, in verse 35. He says, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Because the world, they don't like each other. They let it be known that they don't like each other. We don't like each other. We're still supposed to love each other. And that's what separates us from, from the rest of the world. There's a second lesson here. We're given the measure of love in verses 13 through 15. Love is held up as the measure used to determine our true identity. Are we in the family or are we not in the family? Remember, it's not the means to being in the family. It's not the pathway to be in the family. It's the measure of whether we are in the family. It's the proof that we are in the family. Okay. And so he says this, uh, Don't marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. I'm, I'm kind of shocked at myself how often I am surprised by how the world hates believers and not necessarily me, I haven't felt it so much, but hates believers. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 15. Look at the screen, 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you're in, in Christ, the world's going to hate you. That's just what the world does. They, they do it. I read, and I don't know how long ago this was, but there was a, a student, a second grader, that was taking the Bible to school and during their free reading time was reading the Bible and the teacher told them, you cannot bring your Bible to the free reading time. Hello? What? Every day in America there is some affront to Christian faith. And the world seems to embrace it and seems to welcome it. If you are a person who stands up for traditional family values, you are maligned and you are demeaned and you're criticized and condemned, blah, 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 blah. We could go on and on and on with all kinds of illustrations, but the world doesn't like us very much. And John says what Jesus says, don't be surprised. That's just the way the world is. But that doesn't mean we should hate the world. Remember, the world is not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. The people who don't like us are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. That's why blessed are those who mourn, who cry and grieve over the lost people. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And so he says, don't marvel at that, but then we should understand what he says next. He makes his case very strongly. We know, he says in verse 14, with absolute certainty that we have passed out of death into life. Now, this is the measure. How do we know if we've passed out of death into life? How do we know if we're a child of God? How do we know if we have eternal life abiding in us? How do we know if we have fellowship with other believers? 
because we love the brethren. Because we love other believers. Because that's part of who we are. We've passed out of death, that's an unregenerate state, into life, which is a regenerate state. Life with Christ. Our love for the brethren is, not the, is, is the measure, not the means to life. If I love people, then I become a Christian? No. If I'm a Christian, then I love people. That's who I am. That's part of my identity in Christ. What's the greatest commandment? Now, now the greatest commandment has two parts. Love God and love others, okay? What's the greatest demonstration? What's the thing that, that, that held out to be the foremost grace and mercy in 1 Corinthians 13? Now abideth faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And now we see that the measure of whether or not we're in the family or not is this love. And he says, he who does not love abides in death. So if hatred is what marks those who are of the enemy, then it naturally follows that love marks those who are of the Lord. My parents have a place in Arizona that they go to in the wintertime, and outside of their place there's an orange tree. And the orange tree produces oranges. That's how I know it's an orange tree. Okay. In the church of Jesus Christ, we know that we are Christians because we have the fruit which is produced, which is love. If there is no love, there's no life. That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. If there's no love, there is no life. You see, I, I, I was thinking about this this morning. I was going to think about sharing this this morning, and I thought, you know, I know as, as I'm, I'm preaching, as I'm preparing, as I'm thinking, most of us are going to be thinking about the people that we know who call themselves Christians but who are unloving. Because that's the way our twisted minds work. And see, John is not writing to those people. He's writing to us. So really, the application is don't be gouging the people next to you or casting looks over your shoulder at the next person who you think could be more loving. Probably they could. I mean, that's, that's just hands down the way it is. But the reality is this is for you. This is for me. I know that I am a child of Am I developing? relationships in this local assembly with the people who are part of my church family and particularly my biological family? Am I loving these people? Am I willing to sacrifice what I value to enrich them? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I not arrogant? Am I not jealous? These are the things. John calls upon us to examine our own fruit as evidence of true faith. That's where it gets tough. I'm an expert on what other people should do. You know, you got a problem with somebody, just tell me, and I'll, I'll, I, I'm, I'm good on that. But in the mirror, the man in the mirror, that's the woman in the mirror. That's what I think we need to look at. 
What are we doing personally to specifically to hinder rather than to hamper the love of Christ in this local assembly? John is writing to a group of believers in a specific location with a specific reference, and that's the application primarily. Now that, yeah, yeah, well, I'm supposed to be nice to Charles Stanley. Yeah, but you don't even, do you know him? I mean, he's on speed dial with you, you know? You know? No, it's not for me. Now, maybe you do, and I'm sorry if I've been insulting you, but I mean a little bit uh, extra just to bring home the point that, look, it's for us here in this group. And so what he does in verse 15, John seeks to prove the premise that he made in verse 14. That the lack of love is evidence of spiritual death. So if you look at verse 15, it says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then some of you are sitting here thinking, Oh, so God won't forgive murderers. That's not what it says. Remember Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said there's forgiveness for everyone. What he's saying here is that if murder is a part and parcel of who I am, that person does not, is not part of the kingdom of God. Now, they can be if they repent and turn and trust in Jesus, but at that moment, at that time, as they live out their murderous life, they're not a child of God. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, I've kind of edited it a little bit, but it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, what? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not who we're to be. There is this, this mandate, and there's the measure. And then there's the motivation in verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's two steps. First of all, we must experience love. You see, I know love, you know love experientially, not just intellectually. There's a difference. We know it experientially, not merely intellectually, by embracing Embracing the supreme demonstration of love, which is Christ's death on the cross. I cannot give what I do not have. Unless I possess the love of Christ, I cannot share the love of Christ. We've been in this transition process to Creekside Church, and we have experienced God's love through the brothers and sisters in this church who are praying for us and who are being patient with us and who are making provisions for us in a variety of different ways and caring for us. That's how we know the love of Christ through you. We know the love of Christ initially through what Jesus did on the cross and through our embrace of it. The greatest expression of love is the sacrifice of the greatest possession we have. Our greatest expression of love is the sacrifice of the greatest possession we have. God's greatest possession was his son, and he sacrificed him for you and me. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. 
And unless you and I embrace it, every believer is embracing the love of Christ. They understand we are wretched, miserable, poor, naked, blind, to use the terms in Revelation chapter 3. We're spiritually bankrupt, apart from Christ, destined for an eternity in hell. Judgment is upon us. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, and each one has turned to his own way. Isaiah 53, verse 6. The wage of sin is death. It's a payment we deserve. But God in His infinite love and mercy, not when we became perfect and not when we became better people, but while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That if we would by faith accept that gift, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's not like, oh yeah, I woke up one day and I said, yeah, I just got to work harder for Jesus. No. We just have to trust in what he did on the cross as a payment for my sin. And then we understand that we're unable to save ourselves and that God in his infinite mercy and grace and love, because I'm destitute, he saved me. As the Casting Crown song says, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way? For my ever-wandering heart. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Christ. Man. That's the motivation for us to love other people is because of Jesus' love for us experience. Love is self-sacrifice. To enrich another that I know personally, that I know powerfully, that I know practically because I've experienced it in Christ's love for me. A poor, desperate sinner who doesn't deserve it. What we have experienced, then, John says we should express. The love of Christ is something we should appreciate, but it's not just something to appreciate. It's something to imitate. Notice what he says. We ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. To give our life for our brethren. Following Christ's example of love is costly. Um, Now, again, sometimes that may mean actual physical death. But most of the time it's the take up your cross daily and follow me. That's the death. I don't know about you. I don't do death well. I don't really like dying to myself. I'm pretty much into myself. I think most everybody is. And so this daily dying to my needs, my desires, my wants, my preferences, to love my wife, to love my kids, to love the church family, to love other believers and sacrifice that which I value in order to enrich their lives, impossible unless I understand how much I have been loved how much Christ has done for me and I don't deserve it how can I be so insensitive to the one who has given so much to me it reminds me of that parable that about how many times how much should we forgive and the parable of the the guy who owed the slave who owed his master you know like a year's wages and the master forgave him and then he went out and 
grabbed the throat of the guy that owed him a day's wages and he wasn't willing to forgive this guy one day's wages, how unmerciful would I be, he says. I must examine it. Real love forgets itself. Real love sacrifices. Real love costs. But it doesn't happen in a silo. I don't know. You guys know what a silo is? I don't know. I'm, I'm from farm country. So it's, it's a, a thing back on the farm they used to put grain into or silage. That's why they called it a silo. And then it's straight up and down thing. Actually, if you're coming into town, when I, Des Moines, on Interstate 80 from the west, it says this is a national smoke, smokestack and silo uh, history area. I wonder how many people actually know what that means. But anyhow, I digress. Uh, but we, we don't live in a silo. That means we have to be interacting with other people. That means, are you in a small group? Are you involved serving or in teaching Sunday school or helping with the Wanas or going to Haiti on a mission trip? Oh, by the way, Bob's raising up some people, so if you want to go to Haiti, you better talk to him soon, okay, to serve because I can't know and love people I don't know. That's the point here. We love one another. It's the people that we're, we're interacting with. You know, that's the people that we're supposed to, uh, to know and interact with is the people there. So, John moves from the supreme example to a more sublime manifestation of love. So, he's given us the mandate. He's given us the measure. He's given us a motivation. And now, the manifestation of love in verses 17 and 18. But whoever has the world's good, see, now he moves from that sacrifice of your life, which, like, whoa, whoa, that's pretty costly. Now he's getting down, to, down and dirty. Real practical stuff. Here's the example. Whoever has the world's good. Now, here's the point. That means we have to have the world's goods. Can't give what I don't have. And I have to be in a relationship with the people because they have to know what their needs are. I think that's sometimes why we play it safe. I don't really want to get to know you that well because, you know, I kind of like, my, uh, I kind of like things the way they are, you know. I really don't know if I want to sacrifice for you. So I'll just play it safe and I'll just say hi to you on Sunday morning. Bye. Nice. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. Oh, good. I'm glad you're doing fine because if you told me you're a wreck, I would have to stop and, and then I have to deal with that mess. And you know, isn't it funny? We all laugh, but it's true. And so we play this church thing, and we come on Sunday morning, and we pretend that we got our act together, and that's a bunch of baloney. Because most of us come in here hurting. We're just too proud to admit it. We're lonely, we're scared, we're afraid, we don't feel well. What do you do? Tell people, I'm a wreck. And you know what they say? Oh, that's good. And they walk on. Because we're so conditioned to ignore reality. Because we're expecting them to say, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Oh, good. Glad you're doing fine. Bye. But if you stop, uh, it's going to be interesting after church. <laughs> I'm going to be listening, you know. It's like, how are you doing? I'm a wreck. Oh, that's good. All the elders take their names down. No. But seriously, folks, that's what it means to love one another. Do we really want to pray for each other? I mean, when we say, don't say to somebody, I'll pray for you. 
You know, don't say, oh, we'll get together sometime. No, get your appointment book out or your phone, as the case may be, and check out when you have an open date and say, can we do this day at this time? Give up something of value to enrich the life of another person. And for most of you, there's nothing more valuable than your time or my time. Isn't that why it's easier to give money than it is to go? Eh, just give them some money. Yeah, then they'll stop yapping about their needs for this and that and the other thing, and I'll feel good, and I can pat myself on the back. I'm a good Jesus person because I gave them some money, and I'm okay. Now, I'm sorry. I was a little sarcastic there. It's good to give money. We need people who give. We need people to go. We need people to pray. All of it's good. All of it's good. The manifestation of love is if I see the person, it's a personal sphere of influence, those who have needs, and I seek to meet those needs. C.S. Lewis put it this way, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Ouch. He says, if we close our heart, closes his heart against him. That means I know the need, but I don't care. How does the love of God abide in him? And this is James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? obvious answer. It's of no use to them. It's no use to them. How does the love of God abide in us? So, how do we love each other? Well, I just got some suggestions. These are nothing magical. Just share your stuff. You know? I have stuff. You have stuff. We share her stuff. You know? People share their stuff with us. You know? Some people share their home with us. I mean, we, we stay in their home. You know? Because, you know, they, they, they share their stuff. And they help out. I, there was a, this, still winter, but when it was real winter and it was cold, right there about, right after Christmas, you know, Christmas, New Year's, right in there. Uh, I know somebody in this church got a phone call from some people uh, besides me. Uh, they got a phone call from another person who was having furnace trouble, you know. And that person went over, I think it was on Christmas Day, and spent time on the phone. I guess they didn't go over that day, but they were on the phone talking with them and gave them some instructions, and the person did what they said, and they got the, the problem resolved, you know? Because the vent pipe was uh, freezing up, and they have little sensors in your vent pipe that when it's freezing up, that it shuts off, and so your furnace doesn't run because it doesn't want to back pressure into the house and blow up and everything, all that bad stuff. So anyhow, they, they got it thought out. What I'm saying is that's giving some of stuff, some of your time, some of your energy, some of your money, and we have experienced that and continue to experience that. And it's a blessing. We can love each other in that way, give our stuff. Speak the truth, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. You know, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29. In Ephesians 4, 15, he says, speak the truth in love. It may be a compliment. It may be a correction. You know, it, it isn't loving to let people continue in their sin. 
That's not, that's not love. And so it may be a, a correction. It may be a comfort. You know, we've had a lot of people who are hurting. A lot of people who've lost people close to them. I'm praying for you. I'm sorry about your loss. A note, a card. And you show up. You know, that's the third thing. Show up. Give them the phone call. Make a visit. You know, go see him. You know, I know some of you went to see Ron. He didn't stay there long enough for you to see him. So he just goes to the hospital, gets it all done, leaves. And then you're like, wait, I came to see you. I'm gone. You know, sorry, Ron. And pray for Ron. He's still recouping, you know. That's it. Show up. It may be our time. It may be our stuff. It may be emotional energy. It may be a, a word of prayer. It may be a card. Bake the cookies for Pete's sake. Take them over. Give them the phone call. Send, write the note. I don't know, whatever the Spirit of God prompts on your heart, do it. In the name of Jesus, go see him. We're not supposed to only appreciate what Jesus did. We're supposed to imitate what Jesus did. You know, I really pray that Creekside Church would be known as a body of believers that really cares for each other. I'm not saying we aren't. I just really would want that to be true. Not necessarily that it's we're, we're not arrogantly doing that. We're not exclusively caring for each other, but we are as a priority ministering to each other because that's how the world will know that we are his disciples. That's what Jesus said. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, if we love each other works and all, then the world says that's something that we're not, we're not, that's weird to us. So we don't get that. And they take notice and we say it's because of Jesus that we love each other. Then there's an exhortation, verse 18, talk is cheap. So he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's why I say bake the cookies, you know, make the phone call, write the note, uh, go visit, uh, ask people, how are you really doing? How can I pray for you? You know, can I spend some time talking to you about this? You know, that's what he wants, wants to do. Interesting enough that uh, Buddy uh, and his family, the Cake Boss family, they're at each other's throat all the time. I haven't watched this show for a long, long time, but I know that they are. So I got a picture, that, that, that kind of graphic, that they, they, they're laughing here. But I'm telling you, I have seen the show when they're at each other's throats. You know, literally. But they still love each other. Now, that's not the model for the church is to be at our throats but love each other. We're called to a higher standard. We're supposed to encourage and love and sacrifice. I like the way that um, C.H. Da or John Stott put it. He says, love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. The proof that we possess what we profess in this test is if we love one another. And there's no better way of reminding us of our motivation for doing that than by taking the bread and the cup, which remind us of Christ's love for us, which is verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. These symbols are a vivid reminder of the cost that Christ paid so that we would experience his unconditional love and therefore be able to possess and then express 
that unconditional love to a lost and dying world. And so the bread reminds us of his body, which was broken, and the cup of his blood that was shed. Jesus laid down his life for me, for you, undeserving as we are, flawed and frail and feeble and apt to fail, as Chuck Swindoll says. So we can know his love personally. Everyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and that alone as the payment for his sins is welcome to partake of these elements as a reminder of what Christ has done. But don't stop with our appreciation of what Jesus done, do, has done. But let it motivate us to imitate what Jesus has done. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you're at spiritually, you don't know whether you've personally trusted in Jesus, I would invite you to consider what Christ did in his sacrifice on the cross, what he did to deliver you from your sin, from death, and from an eternity apart from him, and then trust in his death and payment and receive the gift of eternal life and come and celebrate this as an affirmation of your initial experience of his love and let it motivate you. Let's pray. Father, I do pray in my own heart that your spirit would continue to work in me because I know that I, my conduct very often does not reveal the character of Christ. And I know that my lack of love for my brothers and sisters is an indictment against me, even though I know in my heart that it's because of my, my failures and my lack of trust in you from time to time. I have assurance that I am your child, but I have concern in my heart that I would grow and mature in it. And I pray that for each one of us here who knows Jesus, that we would reflect and do business with you, confess our sin, our failure, and then take these elements as a celebration and a commitment to imitate your sacrifice of love for us as we pour it out in loving for others. And for those who don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work to help them see that only through trusting Christ and his death and his sacrifice for their sins will they be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. May they do business with you and pray and repent and turn and trust in Christ and come and celebrate this table as a newfound child of God. In Jesus' name we pray. before God to confess our need for Him my little children let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. May that be true. You are dismissed.